Voices of the Temple, official podcast of the Temple of Witchcraft, exploring mystery and magic through love, will, and wisdom, hosted by Adam Sartwell. Hi listeners, this is Adam here, and I have a great interview with Ellen Dugan. It's pretty long, um, so bear with us. Uh, She gets to a lot of really cool information. I'm using this podcast as our Aries podcast. I will come back to Pisces, I assure you, um, but I had a little difficulty getting to it. I think it may be the fact that he was Mercury retrograde and life was just a little crazy on our end. But let's get to our invocation, and we'll get into our sacred space. I call to the Great Spirit. I call to the two who move as one, through the three rays of love, will, and wisdom. I call upon the Goddess, Maiden, Mother, and Crone, past, present, and future, creator, sustainer, and destroyer, weaver of the web. I call to the God, Lord of Light and Lord of Darkness, God of the green and the gold, God of the horn and the red, singer of the song. Be with us now and forever, so mote it be. Now before we get into our wonderful interview, I wanted to get talk a little bit about our Beltane Psychic Fair and Celebration. There's going to be psychic readers, vendors, a raffle, healers at the celebration. It's Saturday, April 30th at 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. with the Beltane Celebration and Ritual at 7 o'clock. It's at the Salem Masonic Building, yet again. Um, You can read about that on our website. Um, Admission is free, and we are asking a sliding scale donation of 15 to 25 for the evening ritual. Our ritual registration is open, so you can um, go online and pre-register if you want to. Uh, some of the people that we're going to have for vendors are Moon Dragon Designs, which is jewelry, Haunted Woodcrafts, Bewitching Salem, which is apparel, Antica Nuive, which is jewelry and found art, Abacus Beadworks, jewelry, Cloak and Dagger Creations, which is apparel, Cucina Aurora, Kitchen Witchery, for some delicious treats, uh, Fairy Spa, The Magic Garden, and, of course, our own temple store. We are also featuring some local readers for tarot, rune readings, astrology, mediumship, and more. We'll also have a Temple of Witchcraft table uh, for people who are in the ministries who are going to do some work, and they'll have different hours. Uh, We also have a healing ministry from the Virgo ministry on energy work table, which will be staffed by temple ministers. We'll be raffling off some various prizes, including a free reading with the temple founder and high priest, Christopher Penzak. Our Beltane ritual will be put on by high priestess Alex Wright and high priest Steve Kenson, including a maypole dance. Um, All are welcome, so we hope you can come in and enjoy this celebration. The psychic fair is free and open to the public. Pre-registration is recommended for the evening Beltane ritual, and space is limited, although registration will be available on-site. Also, registration is open for Temple Fest in um, June, which you can read more about that at our website, templeofwitchcraft.org. Now, without further ado, we'll just get right into our interview with Ellen Dugan. Hi, listeners. We're here with Ellen Dugan. You can say hi, Ellen. Hello. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, where to begin? Uh, well, let's see. I have been practicing the craft since I was about uh, 18, mm-hmm. and I am uh, 47, so that means I've been doing this for about 30 years. <laughs> um, I uh, got involved with the craft because... Um, I was uh, naturally psychic and clairvoyant and did not understand what this was when I was a young girl, and it caused me lots of problems, and I was always in trouble with my family. Mm -hmm. And so um, as I got older and got out of high school, I started looking around trying to do some research to find out 
what this was and how to control it and what it all meant. And the more I studied, the more I found um, little snippets here and there about magic and witchcraft. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I kept looking into that. And all of a sudden I discovered that what I had kind of held in my heart all the time had a name. And I was very surprised to discover that it was actually witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Um, but it fit. And uh, I've been involved in studying it ever since. I mean, I, people have said that joke, I'm going to practice it till I get it right. Um, you don't you don't just like read three books and ta-da, you're done. It's, it's a lifelong pursuit. It's a lifelong study, and I have um, been involved with it now for almost 30 years, and I have enjoyed it immensely. So obviously you use the title of witch. I do. Um, I, it's kind of funny because, you know, I live in the Midwest, and which always gets me lots of snarky comments. You'd be like, do they have witchcraft in the Midwest? I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, we do. We're not all on the East Coast. You know, no no pun intended to the East Coast people. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, a lot of people are just convinced that there's no witches, you know, uh, west of, you know, uh, Massachusetts. And I'm like, oh, we're, we're, we're here. Um, there's a lot of them in the Midwest, actually. And um, they're a lot more um, out in the open than people realize. I mean, um, they're everywhere. And I, I it's... I can go to a grocery store, I can run you know, to the park, I can go anywhere. I could, when my kids were in school, I could go to a football game or a track meet, and you'd be sitting there in the crowd and look up and see somebody walking by with a pentagram on. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're alive and well in the Midwest, and, um, you know, we have some nice public events here. We have a witch's ball and a big picnic every, every June, and, um, you know, it's a lot of fun, and there's a lot of people out here. I've never really run into any serious problems. Um, yeah. Not in the Midwest, which I know people think would be kind of bad that to be in the Midwest would be dangerous, and not at all. People in the Midwest are very, um, very open, and they are more or less more inclined to judge you on who are you, what do you do, and how, how did you raise your kids, yeah. as opposed to what religion you are. I mean, if you're a nice person, you raise nice kids, you're like, okay, cool. And that's, that's pretty much the way it works in the Midwest. I mean, um, there, we're not so much about... Um, Oh well, I'm 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 the grand high, you know, thrice crowned poobah, and people in the Midwest are more like that's nice. And how do you help your community? You know, so yeah. you know, in, in the Midwest, it's more um, a little more down to earth, a little bit more practical, and very. Um, it tends to be very eclectic here. There's not a lot of established traditions in the Midwest, which is mm. something I run into a lot. People are like, what tradition are you? I'm like, uh, I'm not. Yeah. So I mean, there's there's not a lot of established traditions here. Um, and a lot of people are either eclectic or they get involved with circles or covens, and they, they learn as they can, and they, they take classes where they can. But it, it also makes for a lot of um, a lot of interesting growth and expansion because there's there's so much to learn and so many things. You know, you can take an online class from anybody. You can travel anywhere and you know go to a lecture, or go to a go to a con, and you know and have a good time and learn something. So it's I like it. I mean, I like being in the Midwest. There's no. Um, I guess there, there's no preconceptions, I guess, what would be a good way to put it. It's you are who you are, and you, you stand or fall by your own behavior and your own actions, and to me that just suits me fine. Yeah, that's a very honorable way of doing it. Um, well, it's honest, and in the Midwest yeah. people tend to be very blunt anyway, which I know you're shocked <laughs> you've met me. But, um, you know, people in the Midwest are like, that's nice. I mean, they call Missouri the show-me state for a reason. <laughs> so we're like, oh, really, you can do that? Yeah, show me. I mean, that's just the way people are in the Midwest. And, and I've found that to be true no matter where I've traveled across the United States. People are always very surprised when they meet me that I'm normal, which is I still think is funny as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it has, you know, it has done me well. Yeah. Now, um, talking about your, um, past, mm-hmm. what kind of training did you have? Did you, were you mostly self-taught or? Self-taught. Absolutely. I took, you know, I, I, I did the, I, I did the standard issue. Okay. Somebody somewhere at some metaphysical store teaching a Wicca 101 class. Mm-hmm. And I went to them and I wrote about that when I wrote a uh, natural witchery and some of the classes were excellent and I learned a lot. And some of them just pissed me off. I mean, I'm sitting there, and they would say, okay, now everyone's going to get up and cast the circle. And I kind of bounce into the 202 class because, to be fair, when I first got involved with the community many, many years ago, I was kind of the pet psychic. And, you know, I was younger. My kids are very small. We're talking like 20, 20-some-odd years ago. And mm-hmm. I kind of liked the, the, the attention. You know, I was young, and my kids were really little. And I was like, oh, wow, I get attention. I, I get a pass. I get to get in the class because I'm psychic. So I thought that was pretty cool. You know, I mean, you know, I'm only human. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I would go to class, and they bounced me right into a 202 class. And um, 
everybody was getting up and casting a circle. Well, everybody had taken a 101 class together from this class. Yeah. And so they all did it very much the same. And then it was my turn. <laughs> and I did it very, very differently. And the instructors were horrified. They were just horrified. And I basically was given the equivalent of a slap on the wrist and said, no, 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 dear. This is not the way we do things. And, of course, being the <clears throat> soft-spoken soul, I was like, why? It works for me. And I was very embarrassed, and they told me to sit down, and I was mortified. I mean, I was, like, probably, I guess, about 28, 29. Yeah. And so probably just about 20 years ago, and I was mortified to be told no. And I was like, why is it no? It works for me every time. Why, why is this no? And there was a student in the class with me. Um, I mean, I knew he was a druid. He was this um, really nice young man that I'd met. And I was sitting next to him, and my face was just feet rags. I was mortified. And everybody was staring at me like I'd grown three heads. And he leaned over, and he's like, so you're like a natural witch, right? And I was like, what? You know, I was very surprised because first off, everybody was looking at me like I was the bad student, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, uh, yeah, I guess so. And he's like, girl, you move energy. I could feel that all the way over here. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, watch this. Well, then it was his turn to get up. And I found out later on that he was a, he was a druid. Yeah. He was involved, as, you know, with Obad. And he got up and cast circle, and he was doing like martial arts tai chi movement. And I could feel that in my chest. And it was the strangest thing to sit in a room full of people where I was like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, felt nothing. And here was this guy I barely knew who got up, and you could feel things moving. And then I was like, aha. So did I really learn a lot from my classes? No. Did I learn things I didn't expect? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, you know, looking back, of course, 20 years later, I'm older and hopefully wiser. You know, you have to give, you know, a nod to the teachers who went out of their way to teach, try to teach you something. And at the same time, I learned plenty, just not, I think, what they intended. But I did take classes here and there where I could find them. And they weren't always the best, but, you, you know, you did, you did what you could. You, you took the classes you could get. Um, and I just started studying on my own because everything annoyed me. I didn't find anything that I liked, nothing that really spoke to me. And as time went on and my kids got older... I started getting really frustrated with magical books, and I kept thinking, why is no one writing on the stuff I want to read? Yeah. And I, I've worked over the years many places, you know, nursery centers, garden centers. I've landscaped, you name and I've done it all. And um, I got a job at a bookstore for the winter because, you know, you don't work at nursery centers in the, in the wintertime, not in the Midwest. Yeah. It's too cold. <laughs> and uh, I got stuck in front of the New Age section. I, that that was, my, was my division to be in charge of. What a surprise. And I would talk to people when they would come in, and they'd look through the books. And I said, well, what are you looking for? And everybody was griping and bitching about the same thing. Everybody was mad that there was nothing that like, they wanted to read. And it, that got me to thinking. And I thought, well, I could write a book. Yeah. Maybe. So I thought about it, and I sat down, and I thought, well, why don't I try to write a book? So I did. Um, and I sent it in, and it got published. So <laughs> it was kind of one of those things where um, I was so aggravated with what I found and what I didn't find that I thought, there's got to be somebody else out there who wants to read the stuff that I want to read. So why don't I just write a book for myself and see how it goes? And mm-hmm. that started it. I mean, and I sent my first book in in 2001. And it yeah. was contracted in early 2002. And if someone would have sat me down and said, you know, in, oh, my God, what is it, nine years now? In nine years, you will have written 12 books and be working on your 13th. I would have gone and found them the really good medication because <laughs> there's no way. I, I never imagined that. And, of course, it took a lot of grief. Oh, well, what college did you go to? What's your degree? I'm like, didn't go to college. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't have a degree? No. You don't have a journalism degree? No. Well, how can you be an author? I don't know. Ask Nora Roberts how she can be the best-selling female author in the United States. She didn't go to college either. Yeah. I mean, you know, it just that's how it just got rolling. And the more I found, the more I, you know, the more I studied, the more I wanted to teach, and the more I wanted to talk about, you know, different things. And I thought it was important that somebody stand up and go, "Hey, we're regular folks. We're normal. You know, let's let's take the oogity boogity out of this." And be realistic, and just talk about this, and learn, and maybe laugh along the way, and that's that's what's what kind of brought me to where I am right now. I think just that dissatisfaction that I couldn't find anything that I wanted to read that I could connect with that that really taught me something that made me think a little farther and kind of explored. Okay, well that that's great that I'm a witch, but and what, what else am I? Yeah, you know, am I a regular person? How do I how did I raise my kids? I mean. What do I do with myself at the end of the day? I mean, am I, am I growing my own plants? Am, am I living responsibly? You know, and those are the things I wanted to kind of explore, but I wanted to be more realistic about it. And that's got me to where I am. And then when people would say to me after I first got published, oh, you should teach. And I was like, oh, I don't want to teach. And they said, no, no, just get up and talk. I'm like, well, obviously I don't have a problem talking. But... They said, no, no, get up and talk about the books. And that rolled into teaching eventually. And then that just kind of brought me to where I'm at now. You've studied gardening, right? 
yeah, I'm a master gardener for the state of Missouri. Uh, back in 1999, when I first uh, signed up for the master gardener program to become a master gardener for Missouri, you had to do a college levels uh, course of, for a whole semester of horticulture. And at the time, those classes were taught at the University of Missouri in St. Louis, which is affectionately called UMSL here in, in St. Louis. And um, so you had to do a semester's worth of classes, which I thought was a lot of fun. And so you get this big honking book with all this information, and I'm like, hot damn, more information on gardening, because I've been working in nurseries and landscape centers for years. And so I was really excited thinking I'm going to learn all this important stuff. And I get to class, and I sit down. I have my notes. People are going, excuse me, how do you plant a tulip bulb? But I'm like, what? What do you mean you don't know how to plant a tulip bulb? Put it in the ground. And people, they did not even have basic gardening information. And that really surprised me. So I, I shut my mouth and I went through the, the horticulture level, you know, gardening classes. And um, we had to have a final and the whole shebang. It used to be really, really formal. And I joined the master gardeners, the local ones. And to be a master gardener means that, that you've done the education and that you're volunteering. You're volunteering to teach other people about gardening. Hmm. And as time went on, um, since I'm so terribly shy, <laughs> I have no problem getting up and talking in front of a room full of people, they would tag me to teach the new crops of master gardeners. So then I, I would do that, too. I would teach them. And I, I, and I put those poor people to their paces. I would bring in all kinds of flowers and leaves and, and make them identify them and see how many of them knew what they were. And it was, like, simple stuff. It wasn't, like, something rare off a top of a mountain in Tibet. It was, like, stuff growing in the backyard. And, you know, what is this? I don't know. You don't know what a hydrangea leaf is? You know, I mean, things just to make them think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started doing that. But, no, I worked at nursery centers and, and garden places um, every summer for about 10 years when my kids were young and in school because it's a good job for mom to have. Yeah. You work when the kids are off for the summer, and then, you know, when they go back to school in the fall, your hours get cut. And then in the wintertime, there's no hours to speak of. But, you know, I just worked um, I worked seasonally for a long time. and But it taught me a lot. I worked at tree farms. I worked in nurseries. I worked in greenhouse centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn so much on the job working at places like that. I mean, people keep coming in with the same questions about plants, and you learn really quickly, you know, how to answer those questions. And then when I combine that with my master gardener um, schooling, that gave me even more information. And that's so I used all that when I started to write my books on garden magic and on, on our herbalism because I've got a lot of practical experience. Yeah. So as a master gardener, is there any springtime gardening tips that you could give to our listeners? Yes, amend your soil. Um, that that's the big one that nobody does. There's kind of a standing joke. It's we call it forever. It's called forever and ever amend. Um, always amend your soil. In the Midwest where I live, we have very heavy clay soil here. Yeah. And the old timers like to put sand in the soil because they think it makes it looser. And actually, the sand particles are finer than the clay, so it just absolutely has, has absolutely no effect on it. Um, the best thing you can do is to work in organic manner into the soil you have, and that has to be done with the old-fashioned way with a shovel, a pick, a hole, and a rake. I'm not mm-hmm. kidding. Or you can get a rototiller, which I do have. I have a couple of them. Um, <laughs> or you can rent a rototiller, or you can turn it over all the old-fashioned way with a shovel, which takes forever, but you have to amend your soil. People are like, how do you get good gardens? You have to have good soil. So, And the best way to find out what your soil is is to take a sample of it to your local county extension office, which is where the master gardeners are always um, working out of. Check, check for, like, in the yellow pages of your phone book for the, um, for the county extension office for your county, mm-hmm. and that's where the master gardener is located. You can take your soil in to get tested for free, and the trick is you take samples from all over your yard, not just one spot. And you take it and you get samples, and you find out what exactly you've got. And then if you really want to cut to the chase, ask your neighbors. Ask the people in the neighborhood who've got a garden, what's their soil like? What do I need? Or go to a, go to a local greenery or garden center. Don't bother going to Lowe's or Home Depot with Tommy, the pimply-faced boy who doesn't know anything about plants. You know, just go to someone who's a nurseryman or, you know, a gardener and say, what do I need? Most of the time they're going to tell you to put compost and manure in your soil mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit of peat moss, but that's about it. You never, ever use potting soil. It's a big pit peeve of mine. Potting soil is only for pots in, in containers. It's not meant to be put in the ground. I can't tell you over the years, a number of people I would see pull up to the nursery centers where I would work with, like, 20 bags of yeah. potting soil in the back of their station wagon or van. I'm like, how many, how many containers are you folks doing today? Oh, no, it's for the garden. I'm like, you're going to want to take all those back. Well, so-and-so at Lowe's said, I said, well, he's wrong. That's for a pot. Mm-hmm. So you want to amend your soil. Lots of people think, oh, I'll just dump this really nice black bag of 
of topsoil right on top of my garden. Well, that's great. In about a month, when your plants grow through that little layer of topsoil, they're going to hit whatever they've got underneath it, and they're going to die. So you have to mix it into what you have. If, if you amend the soil you have with organic manner, like leaves that fall off the tree, some, gra- some grass clippings, you know, um, some compost that you can get easily at a garden center you mix that all together into your soil and then plant you've got healthy soil you'll have healthier stronger plants that's people are like who's so involved i'm like no it's just really dirty you do it once or twice a year and you're good but you need to amend your soil that's how you get a really good garden Mm -hmm. um do you have a, a favorite plant Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> or um, favorite taking me plants? to a nursery center or a garden center is kind of um, a scary proposition. My kids, um, my kids are all grown up and they've all moved out of the house just recently. So I'm an empty nester now. It's kind of cool. But when my kids were young, they would laugh because we'd, we'd drive past nursery center and I would act like the car had a mind of its own. I can't stop the car. It's pulling in. They're like, no! They would all scream, don't go in. Um, and it's scary because at Raisin Nurseries, know me by name. Hi, Ellen. <laughs> Here I come, looking for the good stuff. Um, do I have a favorite plant? Ooh, tough call. Um, it tends to change from year to year. I, I get I get seduced by certain plants <laughs> every year, and then I kind of have a fling with this plant for a season or two, and then, then I go to another plant. Probably my favorite blooming herb is probably um, yarrow. There's a particular variety called moonshine, mm. which is a gorgeous yellow and blooms once really heavily in the spring before midsummer, and it lasts about five or six weeks on the plant. And then it blooms again a little bit in the fall. I really like yarrow. I love roses, but I have a love-hate relationship with roses because I live in the Midwest. We have a lot of humidity, so there's always a lot of diseases, so I have to really work hard. So I try to go for things like fairy roses and knockout roses that are very um, disease-resistant and pretty mm-hmm. pretty much damn near impossible to kill. Yeah. Um, I also really like um, hostas for my shady gardens. And I like still these for my shady gardens. And uh, a couple of years ago, I started an iris bed. So my my big goal in life was to try to find um, as many different colored iris as possible that wouldn't cost me a fortune. Um, a couple of years ago, I really got into poisonous plants. I have a couple of wolfsbanes or aconites growing in the yard. Mm-hmm. And they got really huge a couple of years ago to the point that when one of my kids graduated from college and we had all the nieces and nephews and everybody over, uh, there was a lot of toddlers running amok in the yard, and I fenced it off with, like, yeah. a big, you know, four-foot-high fence so the little ones couldn't get it. And I told everybody when they came in, do not touch this plant. <laughs> this is aconite. It causes death by respiratory paralysis. Don't touch it. Everybody's like, why is that in your yard? I'm like, um, it blooms really pretty in October. And it does. <laughs> it does. It's actually a very, very popular plant in the nursery trade, and it's in all the gardening magazines. They call it wolfsbane. It's really cute. Oh, boy, you, you can buy wolfsbane. It's such a beautiful fall bloomer. They just don't tell people what it does. Yeah. Um, but I had to dig it up and move it because it just got huge, and it, it was it was too close. Even though my kids were all adults, and it was making me a little nervous. I just didn't want my neighbor's kids coming over or running through the yard or having an Easter nephew over and have them brush against it, you know, because kids will put anything in their mouth. So mm-hmm. I, I dug it up and moved it and split it up so it wouldn't get so big. Um, and I really like foxgloves. It's probably one of my favorites. Um, my foxgloves have all survived the winter. I've been very shocked. I had buckets over them for about two weeks because we had really warm temperatures on the first day of spring this year. Mm-hmm. Just in time of the equinox, it was 80 degrees. Everything boomed out into bloom, and then it got cold. And yeah. it stayed cold for about two weeks. And we just started acting like spring again just the other day. So I've had all my foxgloves covered up with buckets. I even had a picture of it on my blog. It was called the Bewitching Garden of Buckets because everything was covered with a bucket. It, it looked like I was growing five-gallon buckets in the backyard. But um, I have lots of favorite plants. But I tend to grow stuff. My favorite tend to be stuff that I know performs well. I have no time and tolerance for something that will not grow in my yard. You know, um, I, ha- I love delphiniums. Love them, yeah. love them, love them. Some people call them larkspur. But those damn things, it's like a death sentence. Our, our summers are too humid in Missouri. We, the, the heat gets too high, too fast, and it kills them off. People in, like, Michigan and more northern climes where it's cooler, they can grow those things everywhere. Um, I cannot grow those for any reason. Um, lupins, I love them. Can't grow them anywhere. They grow them damn things. They're wildflowers on the East Coast. When I was on the East Coast a couple years ago, we were driving down the highway, and I'm screaming, look at the lupins! My husband almost wrecked the car. He thought I was yelling <laughs> moose. You know, because, um, you know, nothing like, nothing like a Midwesterner driving down a highway in Maine and seeing the beware of moose signs. I'm like, that's a joke, right? He's like, no, I don't think so. No, it's not. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I found that out. So, definitely uh, <laughs> didn't find out up close and personal, but, you know, I'm yelling, lupins, lupins! And he's like, stop it! So, you know, it was, 
Yeah, there's certain things I can't grow. They just won't do well in my gardens in the Midwest, so I tend not to try them again. I I will only spend so much money on something that just will not survive. But um, I tend to spend my money on perennials. I figure it's better off investing in something that will come back for several years. I don't mind annuals. I do plant them for color and for fun, like impatience and shady spots and pansies in the spring and things in my window boxes and but I, I tend to go ahead and invest in a perennial, which is a plant that'll that'll survive the winter by its root system and come back. I tend to invest in those. Those tend to be things I go for. And stuff that grows well, I'll find different varieties of it and just plant it again and again and again in the yard. And then, then you get a really nice showing of it. Mm-hmm. So what do you have a plant that you, you know, regret ever, you know, putting in Lemon your garden? Balm. Lemon, Lemon balm. Lemon balm. I still take grief for that. I planted it once. And it went really crazy. And as you know, it's part of the mint family, and mm-hmm. you can't kill mint. You can't no. kill mint with a flamethrower and a chainsaw. Those babies yeah. just keep coming back. And it escaped, and it seeded. And I was like, look, and this was a new gardener. Look at the pretty flowers. And those damn things set seeds and blew all over my backyard. Mm-hmm. This day, my husband cuts the grass. It smells like lemonade. He comes inside yelling at me. <laughs> We're still killing off lemon balm. I really regret the lemon balm. Really regret that stuff. Yeah. Um, I had catnip in one of my gardens for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, the cat that I have now is totally disinterested in catnip. She doesn't even react. My other cats would just go bonkers over it. Uh, but every neighborhood cat or every feral cat was in my backyard, like, party at the Dugan house. They're back there on their backs and mm-hmm. wallowing and everything and then using my herb garden for a litter box. So I got rid of the catnip because my cat wouldn't touch it. And all the neighborhood cats were just kind of going crazy. And I didn't want to walk down to my little secret herb garden down there. But it's all pretty informal and all fenced in and with fancy boxwood shrubs and it's pretty curved arbor and go, oh, I smell cat box because all the cats were down there using my bottom mm-hmm. of my yard. Yeah. So, yeah, I regretted that. So I, I just basically dug it up, dug it up, transplanted it, gave it away, and then was ruthless and used Roundup on it and got, got rid of anything else. And it, it cut down on the problem a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, that's part of gardening. You plant something, it doesn't work, you dig it up, you move it, or you dig it up and you give it away. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. and sometimes you plant something with the best of intentions and it just dies. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's just part of it. You learn and you keep, oh, I'll try something else next year. So, I mean, you just, you just keep trying with it. You live near St. Louis. Uh, what right. would you What would you think is the, like, word that would encapsulate the soul of St. Louis? I can give you the examples that I, oh, I came up with me. for other places. Okay. Um, like uh, Rome would be sex, and uh, New York would be busy. Um, you know, something like that. St. Louis. Well, there's more here in this part of the country than most people expect. The two largest rivers on the continent meet mm-hmm. in, uh, in and around the St. Louis area. There's the Cahokia Mounds in Illinois. And actually, most people don't know that St. Louis was once called Mound City. Hmm. Most people have heard of Cahokia, which is across the river where all the big uh, earth pyramids and all the earth mounds are. Yeah. It's a beautiful um, nat- national park that anybody should ever go to if they're ever in the area. It'll blow your mind. It's amazing, um, the Cahokian people and everything they've discovered. But what most people don't realize is the, the Cahokian village actually ran all the way into what's now downtown St. Louis. It was originally called Mound City. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of history here in this part of the country, which most people are blissfully unaware of. Lewis and Clark started their expedition from here. Um, there's lots of hauntings. There's lots of sacred places. There's lots of energy vortexes, which most people you know, think, oh, dude, I've got to go to Sedona. I'm like, dude, go down where the Missouri and the Mississippi River meet and stand there for five minutes and get back to me. I mean, there's a lot of stuff around here. Um, mm-hmm. I think... Most people kind of underestimate that because they figure, oh, it's the Midwest. There's nothing here. There's a lot to be found in this part of the country. You just have to open up your eyes and look for it. Yeah. So it's kind of hard to have one word. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe surprising. Surprising. Maybe that's, surprising. There, there's, there's a lot here that most people don't even know about. I mean, I live in the, um, I live in the uh, first state capital of um, the state. It's, it's not the capital now. It was the first state capital. And yeah. we have a massive historic – I can't talk. We have a massive historic section here, and it is haunted insanely. Um, I uh, used to work down there in that historic district. Again, always work seasonal. And every store I worked in was haunted. Um, I did a lecture – um, a couple of weeks ago, and a paranormal team came to lecture, and we got done, and I walked them around, friends with a couple of the people on the team, and walked around and showed them some of the hot spots in the historic district, and they, they just couldn't believe it. They're like, are you kidding me? I mean, they, they could not get over 
how much energy was still there and, you know, the buzz they could feel. And even some of them were like, I never feel anything. I'd walk around. They were like, oh, my God. I took I took Christopher to one of those places when he was in town a couple – I guess it was last November. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff here, which always surprises people. Yeah. Now, um, part of St. Louis, you can't do psychic reading stuff in because they don't – they, like, passed a law, right? Like, yeah, the old gypsy laws are still on the books yeah. back from the late 1800s. You cannot do tarot readings um, in town for cash, or you can get a fine. Now, I don't know how much it's enforced, but it's really not worth getting busted over. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, they, they have tried a couple of times to get those repealed, but, you know, the town council doesn't think it's, it's just worth that much of its of its aggravation. I mean, you know, um, I've done tarot readings and and psychic parties for people for years. I just don't set up a card table in the middle of Main Street. You know, yeah. I just, you just have to be a little bit more discreet, you know. And back in the day when I worked psychic fairs, you just went in the county. You stayed out, you stayed out of the city limits because there are certain counties where you couldn't – or certain, like, city limits where you could not do those. So you just, you know, yeah. went about 10 miles west, and you were no longer in – Mm-hmm. In the city, quote unquote. So there's always a way to get around it. Uh, you now, recently uh, wrote a book on protection magic. Um, mm-hmm. I often find when you write or teach about protection magic that the universe gives you chances to practice. Uh, did you talking to Christopher? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've taught protection classes before, and yes, it always comes up. And uh, I've also had yeah, my own... it does. My own experiences uh, going yeah. to one of Christopher's protection magic classes where I got sick, like, right yeah. after. And then had to do my own little protection magic to get rid of right. stuff. So have yeah, you Yeah, felt- the universe tends to go, oh, you, you, think, you, want, you think you want to write this? Well, what, what's that old saying? You teach best that which you most need to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a situation I found myself in a lot as years went by. And the more, um, the more well-known I became, the more my books got out there, the more people knew who I was. I discovered again and again that not so much for myself. It wasn't like I was screaming, I'm under attack. It was nothing quite that dramatic. But I would notice that people would walk up to me and they'd kind of be like, ah. Oh, Listen, I have a question, and I'm I feel like, oh my god, what the hell? What, what this is so clandestine. I mean, what are you going to ask me? Mm-hmm. And they would always be questions on protection magic, and people would always be embarrassed to ask about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not shy, and I'm like, why are we whispering? Everybody's like, Ooh! everybody would get all upset, and I was like, what? What's the deal? And everybody kept wanting about protection, and then it kept getting brought back up, brought back up, and then the more I was around and. The lecture circuit. I know people were lecturing on how to do hexes and curses, and I thought, okay, that's not cool. Mm-hmm. But it was very popular topics. Yeah. And I was like, all right, and nobody's talking about the cost of these. That's interesting. And then more and more people were asking questions about it, and I thought, huh. So I started looking up. I thought, you know, that'd be a cool book to write. And I started really looking at it, and I was very surprised at the lack of materials out there. Christopher has a good book on it, and I love the CD that comes with it. I, I love that CD. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was about it. I mean, I found one, maybe one or two other ones where I was like, okay, well, this isn't bad. And I found one where I was like, okay, we're in a language I've never heard of, and I'm supposed to repeat this. I don't know who I'm calling or what this is. Pass. You know, so, and then, then, there, then there was the other extreme, which kind of goes, oh, you know, the witches never curse them, they never harm, this never happens, which makes me think the White Light and Hot Tub Brigade. You know, it's like, um, okay, that's one extreme, and here's another extreme, mm-hmm. so where's the middle ground? And yeah. the more I thought, I'm like, you know, why don't I look at the middle ground? So I dove in, and it was probably one of the more challenging books I've ever written because it forced me to deal with stuff that I really didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, when I wrote the chapter on emotional bullies, and emotional vampires, I sure as hell had to find myself dealing with many situations along these lines, or my friends did, and I had to, like, coach them through it. Mm-hmm. Um, when I had to deal with the stuff about hexes and curses, I found myself in a lot of situations where I was being come to to be asked for advice. Mm-hmm. People who were really dealing with hexes and curses, and it was not made up. They were not being hysterical. Yeah. Um, it was the real deal. Um, it was very interesting how... I would start to research a topic, and all of a sudden, this stuff would drop into my lap. I have this theory where the gods and goddesses sit up in, in the afterlife, and they watch us from lawn chairs drinking margaritas and laughing. But they watch us make, oh, isn't she cute? <laughs> She's going to write a book on protection magic. Let's see what she does now. And then they throw more things in your lap just to see how you handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they go, oh, my gosh, guys, you got to watch this. Check this out. I, I really think that that's, that's what they do. And then they pat us on the head and go, oh, you were so good. You learned very well. And then we're going, gee, thanks. 
But I mean, then once all said and done, I'm like, hey, I really learned something. But for me, writing this book made me made me look at my shadow side. It made me look at the stuff that most people don't want to deal with. And it made me ask some really tough questions like, why have we as a community for the past 20 years done this whole whiff about how nobody ever hexes and curses? That's not true. Yeah. That's like saying, I will never mug anybody. I will never mug. I would never rob another person. Therefore, because I will never rob another person, no one will ever rob me. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see how well that that works out for you. Yeah. You know, you can't walk through life, you know, singing la 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 and thinking, well, I'm a good person. I would never harm or assault or steal or murder. So therefore, it will never happen to me. That's not true. You yeah. you can't be paranoid. But you have to be aware. You have to be smart. I mean, it's like walking through an alley with, with a bunch of cash in your hands going, ah, you can't get me. I'm a good person. Somebody will eventually take you up on that dare. Yeah. And as witches and magic users, we carry a lot of power. And people know that. I mean, you say, people say when they, people uh, when new students start the craft, oh, you know, you're, you're like a light. You're a beacon. Uh-huh. And a lot of things are attracted to that beacon, good things and shadow things. Mm-hmm. And so people notice when someone is successful, uh, what, and I don't mean book writing. I mean when they're happy and they're doing well with their craft and their life is going along, people notice that. And they want to know how you've done this. How have you attained this? Why, you know, why are you happy? Why aren't you dealing with other things other people are? Why are things going smoother? Or, you know, why, why, why do you seem like, like you have your stuff together? I don't have my stuff together. And they start to wonder and they start to notice. So when you are a magic user, a lot of things notice. And you become kind of this beacon, and it pulls light things to you, and it pulls shadow things to you. So it makes sense to me that if you're going to be uh, working with powers, then you damn well better know how to defend yourself should the situation ever arise. It doesn't mean you have to run around and be chicken little all the time. I think the sky is falling in. It just means you need to be aware that it can happen. And if you really look at something and drag it out in the line of day and go, all right, this yeah. is a scary topic. Let's pull it out here. Let's look at it. Let's take it apart. Let's talk about it. Maybe we'll have a good chuckle over some silly things. It becomes much less frightening because you really looked at it. And once you've looked at something and studied it, it's much less frightening. Yeah. So that's what I did. And I think um, everyone should you know, take self-defense courses. I think everyone should take you know, self-defense and magic really. Um, right. because it, there are people out there who are not as ethical as no. others. And, uh, some of that is just, it is run rampant lately. Um, I think and that, jealousy, jealousy is the big green eyed monster. And the truth is some 99% of the time when there's a problem with someone throwing a hex or a curse, sending negative energy or bad mm-hmm. juju, whatever you want to call it, whatever, whatever the, <laughs> correct political term is these days when someone's throwing something negative i like the term baneful magic it's less politically motivated you know you can't say black you can't say white magic that's just not cool but i say i like to say i like to use the word baneful baneful being harmful or poisonous so i I use the term baneful um if someone's gonna throw baneful magic your way which could fall anywhere from you know psychic attack to a to a curse or to a hex or just to cross condition or maybe somebody just really doesn't like you said you know i'm just gonna make them as miserable as possible when someone does that, it's 99% of the time motivated out of jealousy, mm-hmm. and it's motivated out of the fact that they're afraid of you because they feel like you're better than they are, and they don't like that. What most people fail to realize is that somebody has to take the time to throw a hex or a curse or negative energy or psychic attack at you. You've already got them running scared. Yeah. That's your advantage. So use it, but nobody ever tells anybody that. Nobody ever says, all right, kids, here's what you need to know. And I thought, well, damn it, I will. I'll stand, I'm not shy. I'll stand up and say it. Let's say it. This is the problem. It's usually jealousy. They're usually feeling inferior or intimidated somewhere. So since they're already feeling intimidated and inferior, use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They... It, 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 doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're sending back negative stuff. It means you're already above them a couple pegs anyway. So look at them for who they are, see what they've done, and then use it. It doesn't mean you have to get nasty. It means you become aware and you become stronger. I mean, we always tell people, you know, you have the right to practice your craft, but it's also your duty to protect yourself. Yeah. Now, do you feel that um, as being psychic and clairvoyant, do you feel that you're more aware of malicious spirits, malicious energy, um, baneful, I guess is the word, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you're more aware of that? Uh, yeah, I've often said that being clairvoyant 
or being psychic as a witch is a double-edged sword. Uh, When you come into this world already naturally psychic, it's somewhat easier to pick up the craft and to start, you know, dealing with some of the heavier magics because what somebody else has to bust their ass for six months to learn or two years to embrace, you've already got because you already understand the psychic side of it. Um, because it's why I've always discovered that the most powerful witches I've ever known are usually very good psychics or intuitives or empaths or mm-hmm. however clairvoyants. They usually just have that already, whether it was a natural gift or whether they worked to get it. Yeah. And that being said, everyone has psychic abilities. It's up to them to figure out what they are. Yeah. In the book, um, I talk about the four main types of psychic abilities and the strengths that come with them and the weaknesses that come with these abilities. Mm-hmm. For example... If you're clairvoyant, people are like, oh, well, they can see anything coming. That's not true. The weakness a clairvoyant has is because they see so much, they spend all their time going, well, is this for me? Is this for my cousin, you know, Marianne? Is mm-hmm. this for me? Is, is it for my friend? Is it for my partner? Is, is, it, is it for my sister? They, they have to go always go through and, like, weed things out, and it takes them time. Yeah. So while they're wasting time trying to figure out what these images and visions are that they're seeing, mm-hmm. they've left themselves wide open. That's and, and, and they tend to second-guess themselves because they get so many impressions. They're always putting through them. They're always double-checking them, and it takes some time. Mm-hmm. That's their weakness. Yeah. Like an empath is extremely sensitive and can be sensitive to all kinds of things. You, know, you, get, a, you get a good empath in a magical circle, and they're like, ooh, I feel the energy moving. At mm-hmm. the same time, an empath in a room full of people that are ill or people that are particularly negative, it's devastating to them. That's their weakness. Yes, they're very sensitive. Yes, they're very open to all the different emotions and vibes in a room, but they're also wide open to all the negativity. That would be their weakness. Mm -hmm. So that being said, the trick is, okay, here's your strength. So what's your weakness? Yeah. And something I did with this book, which I've never seen done before, is we always teach witchcraft students really early on, magic follows a path of least resistance, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. So where are you, where are you the least resistant? Hmm. If magic follows a path of least resistance, then ask yourself, where am I the least resistant? What am I the most afraid of? What is what is what is my weakest spot? Because yeah. once you identify that, you can strengthen it and you can shore it up. Mm-hmm. And you can work daily to make it stronger because attacking magic, attacking psychic energy or baneful magic or baneful spells will go straight to the spot where you're the weakest because that's how it gets in. Hmm. Well, but once you know where it is, that's it's like I said, pe- you know, people who take the time to throw this stuff, mm-hmm. you're already ahead of the game. Well, you know where your weak spots are, you can cover it. Yeah. You can strengthen it. You, you can make it not a weak spot. It, it'll be a strong spot. It makes it tougher to get in. And it's more a level of being aware, not paranoid, because you don't get a discount on black candles because you're paranoid. <laughs> you don't, being paranoid is not the way we want to go. We don't want people to be afraid. We don't want people to freak out. We want them to be aware and watching. If you're watching and you're aware, you've already won. Mm-hmm. So do your homework. Know what your strengths are. Know what your weaknesses are. Understand how this stuff works. And then move to fix it. Yeah. Here's This is the question that I've been asking uh, the authors that I've had on the the podcast. Um, okay. It's called during in the temple. We have something called uh, true will. Um, uh-huh. Basically, it's your uh, what you came here. What's your purpose? Well, your purpose for being here and being aligned with your higher self sort of brings you into that purpose and into that flow. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think is your true will? Your great work in this world. It involves it, with involving the craft. It's to make people laugh and to make them think. Mm-hmm. I have stood and watched people who lecture, and they blow my mind. They're so eloquent. They're, they, you know, the things they say are so deep and they're moving. And I sit back and I go, "Wow." Mm-hmm. But I have found for myself that when people come to my lectures and they start to giggle and they start to laugh, they have a good time. They open up, they relax, they think on a different level, and then they go home and go, God, that was fun. Mm-hmm. You know, I really learned something there. I think my will or my reason for being here is to make people laugh mm-hmm. and to make them think. If you can get them to laugh, they open up. And that makes them think about things from a different perspective. Yeah. Once you get them to think, they can do anything. I really think humor is a really good way to teach. It doesn't mean I don't ever take myself seriously. I can be very serious, which always surprises people when I get serious. But at the same time, a little bit of laughter goes a long way towards teaching people. 
Hmm. Um, and I think that smiling and laughing about stuff, especially when it's a really serious topic like protection magic, yeah, makes people calm down and makes them realize, you know what, this is not the end of the world. The monster's not going to climb out of the closet and eat my face. It's going to be okay. I can handle this. Whether I think my house is haunted, whether I think my mother-in-law is a psychic vampire, whether I think the maniac in my coven is a drama queen is an emotional vampire, mm-hmm. or whether, whether I think that, you know, that, that other tarot reader across the room is trying to suck me dry, whatever it is, if you can look at it and go and kind of giggle a little bit, it puts things in perspective. Mm-hmm. You can look back at the things you've, you've been taught and go, you know what? I do know how to handle this. And then you go in with a whole different attitude. And if you can go in with an attitude like, huh, I got this. Here we go. I know just what to do. If you can go in like that, you go in confident and you become successful. But you've got to, you've got to change your perspective. We're so serious in the craft. Yeah. We're so serious in the craft. I was in uh, Montreal with Christopher in December. And he was going to do a lecture the first time he was there. And I never, ever get to hear him lecture. So I was really excited to sit in on the lecture. And he looked at me very seriously and said, I'm going to do an LBR before we begin. I was like, okay. And I had my back to him, which was my first mistake. (laughs) See, you know where this is going because you know him. No, I don't. And, uh, well, I had my back to him. And I thought to myself for a split second, he's not going to start belting that out like real loud, like a show tune, is he? And he started singing real loud, and I jumped out a foot straight up in the air because I was like trying to be serious. I was going to, you know, follow along silently and do the motions and, you know, calm my inner being and be calm and be part of the experience. I was, you know, I was all ready. And he started belting out those Hebrew songs. He called the, the Hebrew names, and he was singing. And he's got a hell of a voice. He mm-hmm. scared me so bad. And then I started to giggle, and I was trying not to laugh <laughs> because I jolted so hard. And so I'm saying there, just my eyes are streaming down my face. I'm trying not to laugh because, you know, he's going from corner to corner and I'm, you know, I'm repeating, you know, the motions and we get all done and it's like blissfully silent and he's all like in tune and all. And I look at him and he looks at me and I'm standing there with my eyes on and he's like, are you laughing? And I just lost it. And I'm like, you scared the hell out of me. You could warn a girl if you're going to start singing. And he, I said, you going to start singing Oklahoma. I said, oh, my God, you killed me. And he's like, I can't believe you just did that. I'm like, I'm sorry. I just thought that was funny. But at the same time, it lightened the mood. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, I'm not putting down the LBR or any ceremony magician that's listening. But I just, like, I'm one of those people that tends to find things to be funny. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can respect and really get into someone who's very seriously doing their stuff. But unfortunately, if I'm in the room, there's probably going to be humor. <laughs> yeah, I um, recently during our Ostara ritual before to set the space, I did the L- LBRP and mm-hmm. everyone went like silent. You could have heard a pin <laughs> drop in that room. And, and Were you at the, singing? Well... I was using my resonant voice, and everyone yeah. was like, See, he's holy that resonant cow. voice, and your hair turns up on the end of your head. You're just like, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the big, the, 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 it's, it's the, oh, Oklahoma. Yeah, it's the big, nice, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, the big one. And, and everyone was quiet, and when I was done, I just turned, and I was like, you can all talk now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you could talk while I was doing it. I don't care, you know? I'm still going to clear the energy. You know, so. Yeah, he clears energy real good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that... it just brought in a lot of giggles on on my end, just because I I was just caught off guard. Because whenever I'd seen it done, it was just spoken, and it was always done yeah. very quietly. Yeah, well, it's so supposed you know to be... for me it was it was a hell of a jolt. You yeah. know, well, it's supposed to be so resonant that it flows through your entire body. Oh, it was resonant. <laughs> and, God, it was resonant. Yeah, and everyone was like, "Oh my God!" And I've always done it that way. So like, I even sing it sometimes to. You know, oh yeah. Fun. So they were like, oh, you know. And yeah, unfortunately, because I was giggling, I couldn't look at him and go, hey, dude, could you teach me that? That's really cool because I was too busy <laughs> giggling, and he was trying to give me that look that he often gives me. Yeah. I'm usually in trouble when I'm with him anyway. <laughs> so I, 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 get, I get that stern look. It's kind of parent to child where he just looks at me and shakes his head, and I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> so um, tell us about your books and your classes that you offer. Uh, right now, I'm offering seven classes online. Wow. Um, they are uh, the autumn Sabbaths and the spring Sabbaths, and, which is funny because I sell a lot of the autumn ones in the spring to the people in Australia and vice versa. I, I just get the biggest kick out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a class called The Elements of Witchcraft, which is uh, 
a beginner's class, and it's good for anybody, no matter what their age. And then I have a class called Advanced Natural Magic, which is like part two of the Elements class. Yeah. And I have a class um, called Herb Magic. That that was a, that's a new one. I started recently offering that this year. And um, I let's see, what else do I have? I have a class, um, a mini class on the full moons, which covers every full moon of the year and then blue moons and lunar eclipses. And they're all a lot of fun. The most ex- and I also have a class on uh, Natural Magic for Hearts and Home. And all of my classes are uh, $40 or under. And they're work at your own pace. So yeah. you, you, know, you sign up for the class on my website. It's a PayPal deal. And then I email you the classes, and you print it out, and you put it in your folder, and you work through it at your own pace. There's no homework to send in. I'm not going to stand over you and shake my finger at you. Mm-hmm. I treat my students like they're adults. Here's the stuff. Let's go. And they, they do their work, and they, you know, and they, they you know, if they're going to, if they're going to do great at their class, it's going to be up to them. If they're going to fail at their class, it's going to be because they didn't want to put any effort into it. Um, I started doing those a couple of years ago. The classes are still running strong, and people really enjoy them because there's a lot of stuff to choose from. And for a lot of people who have children or work full-time or maybe they work second or third shift, let's face it, it's tough for them to go to a class. And a lot of people who live in the Midwest or in more rural areas, they don't have access to public classes. Mm-hmm. So an online class for them is the best way to go, and these are affordable. So they, they can pick up a class and do it at their own pace and still enjoy it as much as if someone came you know, to like a live class of mine. Yeah. And because I had so many students who kept saying, you know, you never come where I'm at. You know, I live out here. You never come out here to do a, an author event. I wish you did an online class. So that's why I started doing the online classes, so people could take a class from me and do it privately in their own home, you know, at their mm-hmm. own pace and enjoy yeah. it. Well, that's cool. And how about books? Um, well, I have 12 out now, and the next one will come out next year, and I'm not announcing what the title of that one is until I get it done and send it in. It'll be another Llewellyn book, mm-hmm. but I have uh, Garden Witchery, which was the first book I ever wrote, and that's about garden magic and herbalism. Mm-hmm. I have Elements of Witchcraft, which is natural magic for teens. Uh, that is a basic beginner's book, and what's really funny is I sell that book to more adults. Yeah, the teenagers, and I, it's also a hot seller with ceremonial magicians, which still warps my mind. <laughs> I get more letters from guys who have picked that up for their kids, yeah, and ended up buying copies for themselves. Or um, a few years ago, I met a guy who walked to me real, real quietly, and he said, "Listen, I asked you a question." And I said, "Well, shoot," and he said, "I'm a ceremonial magician. He was in a lodge, and he goes, and my teacher told me I can't learn on my own. What do you think of that?'" And of course, being the soul of discretion, I said, "Well, I think that's bullshit." <laughs> And he's like, really? And I said, yeah, of course you can learn on your own. What, what, do you, what, do you want, what, what do you want to learn? He goes, I need to learn about the elements. And I just hand him this book. I said, ignore it. It says it's for teens. And read it. Yeah. And he bought it. And he sent me this lovely letter about three weeks later. Um, and to my surprise, it has, that has been a book that I've sold a lot to people that were studying more ceremonial type of traditions. Because mm-hmm. people are like, I just need to know my basics. How do... How do I learn about the elements? How do these really tie into magic? Hmm. So that, that has done really well with adults, um, to my surprise. Yeah. And then there's Cottage Witchery, which is Natural Magic for Hearts and Home, which is still a really good seller of mine. And that's just like the title sounds. It's, it's the magic for the home. Yeah. And then I have Autumn Equinox, which is one of the Sabbath series from Llewellyn. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's for the whole season of the fall. That's not just like, okay, it's Maybon and I'm done. It's, it's the whole season of the fall it covers. Yeah. And then um, I have the Enchanted Cat, which was my first cover award winner. And that's all on the magic of the cat, uh, your domestic feline, uh, familiars, all that kind of good stuff. Mm-hmm. And we have Herb Magic for Beginners, which I was asked to write. And um, even though I'd already written Garden Witchery, which I found kind of a tough book to write because Herb Magic is actually a major magic. It's not actually a, a beginner's topic. Mm-hmm. So writing a for-beginners book on that was kind of, you know, an enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a riddle. Um, but it was it was interesting to do because so many people want to get into herb magic but don't really know where to start. So yeah. I did herb magic for beginners. And then um, Natural Witchery was um, my next book, and that was my second cover winner. Mm-hmm. And that one is on intuitive, personal, and practical magic. It's about taking your psychic abilities, figuring out what they are, and how to add them in, into your craft to make your craft stronger, to make it work better. And then I have How to Enchant a Man, which is a book on love magic, and uh, and I wrote it from my perspective because I'm a gal and I like guys. So mm-hmm. um, it's funny that book is a really good seller with with gay men, yes. and I've had a lot of women who get really offended by it, <laughs> which I think is a riot. It's I, I have had people scream at me about the book because they they said they said they found it offensive, and I'm like really because there's 
a couple of really nice gay couples standing next to you. They're just going crazy over it, but but you think it's offensive? Okay, actually, that book is the most raunchy and daring book I've ever done. Yeah. They let me get away with stuff in that book I didn't think they would. <laughs> um, and people who have read it lose their mind over it and laugh and literally email me and go, I can't believe you have this in here. <laughs> um, it's very funny and very tongue-in-cheek and a little obnoxious. But And it's not so much on how to enslave a man. It's how to enchant a man. The, the truth is... If, if you want to have romance in your life, then you have to start with yourself. The whole book focuses on doing magic on yourself to attract the right kind of partner in your life. Because let's face it, when you're in a happy relationship and you're, you know, you're happy and you feel good about yourself and you're, you're in love, uh, people just fall out of the trees. You're like, where the hell were these people when I was looking for a partner? Where are these people at? Yeah. They were not attracted to you because you were miserable. You were lonely. Yeah. You, were, you were desperate when you're happy and in a good relationship and feeling secure. They come sniffing out from everywhere. Yeah. And that's, that's the whole point of the book. Work on yourself. You do the magic on yourself. That's how you enchant a man, you, or, or a woman for that matter. You, you enchant yourself first. You, you work on yourself. You put that energy out there to attract the right kind of person. Because when you, if, you're, if, you're doing, if you're stupid enough to do magic when you're desperate for somebody and you're doing love magic, who are you going to get? You're going to get a psycho. Because why? Well, what was your state of mind like when you did the spells? It was pretty, pretty irrational, pretty unbalanced. What do you think you're going to bring in, in, into that situation if it, if it manifests? Mm-hmm. So the whole book takes a look at love magic and romance magic and how it really works and how it should work without manipulating. Yeah. Um, and the next book was Garden Witches Herbal, and that was um, actually a continuation of Garden Witchery. It was a lot deeper, and that's on um, herbalism and green magic and spirituality. I took it a little bit deeper. I have a chapter on poisonous plants in there because I get lots of questions about poisonous plants. Everybody wants to use them in magic. Mm-hmm. Nobody really knows how. Um I made sure I hit on a lot of topics, gardeners who garden, like in the southwest, you know, different areas of the country that, you know, people don't usually write about plants that are, you know, only grown in the southwest. Nobody ever writes about, like, wildflowers and magic. I mean, I thought it was important to write about things from a different perspective because, I mean, a lot of people want to do magic out in the wild, but they don't know how to work with wildflowers. And the trick is you don't pick them. You work with them where they are. You Mm -hmm. just do it. You just sit down and you sit with that plant and you talk to that plant and you see what that plant has to teach you. And then you work with the energies that are there. But the plant stays. You don't touch it. I mean, it's illegal to gather many wildflowers and stuff in the wild. And number one rule, like when you're a Girl Scout or a Boy Scout, if you pick the wildflowers, then nobody else can see them. You don't pick the flowers. Mm -hmm. But it's a way to do magic with the things that you find naturally growing in nature and learning to tune into the more green magic, which is pretty much tradition-friendly. It doesn't matter what tradition you are. And green magic is working with what you have. What are the seasons where you live? Do you have the four classic seasons? Are you in the southern United States or the more northern? I mean, when I was in Maine a couple years ago, they said, oh, we have five seasons. We have summer, fall, winter, mud, and spring. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay. You know, so, but you have to think about it. Well, what are the seasons where I live in the Midwest? We pretty much have the classic seasons with the wheel of the year. Mm -hmm. But people that are farther south, they don't have that. People that are farther north don't have that. People in California, they don't have that. So the trick is work with what you have. If you tie into the plants that are native to your part of the world, if you tie into the seasons where they are where you live, if you tie into the natural landscape and the natural um, power places, like for me, that would be where, where the two rivers meet. For somebody on the coast, obviously, would be the ocean. Mm-hmm. If you tie into those natural uh, magical hotspots and, and do your magic there, it makes your magic very unique because if you're working with what's native to your own area, it makes your magic different. And no two witches' magic will ever be the same. And if magic is unique, that makes it more personal, which makes it more powerful, which mm-hmm. is the whole idea of that book. Yeah. And then um, Book of Witchery was actually um, the old Seven Days of Magic, and I had a shot at redoing it, so I tripled it in size. Um, nothing irks me more than when a book is re-released with just a new cover. Yeah. So I didn't just slap a new cover on this thing. I tripled it in size. It is massively huge, and it covers the correspondences of the days of the week, and it's about anything you could imagine that would go with them, with the point being, once you know your basic correspondences, you don't have to worry so much about what phase the moon is in. Yeah. And you'll have your basics down. I mean, I'll say that in front of a room full of people that will tell me they're third degree whatevers. And I'll say, how many people in the room know their daily correspondences? And it's like silent. And I'm like, how many people know what planet goes with Wednesday? They're like, is that Mars or is that Mercury? And I'm like, okay, here we go. That would be Mercury. What's the color? Anybody know what the color is? I don't know. What about plants? Silence. What about deities? Silence. What about stones? What about crystals? What about herbs? Silence. 
what do you guys do on a Wednesday? Wait for Friday? I'm like, okay. See, these, these are the things that I think I find a little alarming as a witch that people don't know their basics. Mm-hmm. If you know your basics, you can do anything, but you've got to learn your basics. So learning the basic correspondences to the seven days of the week gives you all these tools in your toolbox to work with. Let's say you've got to do a spell for prosperity. Maybe money's really tight. And the moon is waning, and it's a Tuesday. And you've got to do the spell right now. You can't wait on, for two weeks on a Thursday in a waxing moon. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Okay, well, let's think about this. If it's a waning moon, you could banish poverty. You could banish your worries. It's a Tuesday. You call on Mars or the warrior aspect to be brave and to be strong and to blow any problems you've got right out of the water. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could think, and there's all these different things that you could apply, but once you know your daily correspondences, you waste so much less time going, okay, I saw it in this book, I saw it in this book, where is it, where is it, where is it? You just know. Yeah. Oh, it's Tuesday. That's that's red or black. Oh, it's these herbs. Oh, it's this day. Okay, and this day is for courage and passion. I can work with that. I need courage and passion to get myself some more money. I mean, you know, again, mm-hmm. no must, no fuss. It's quick. It's easy. And you just go to work because as people discover, the longer they practice their craft, your rituals and spells actually become shorter. Yeah. Because when you're a new witch, it takes you forever to find everything and set it up. When you've done it for a while, it gets quicker. It gets more focused, and it's more streamlined. But by learning your basic correspondences, um, the Book of Witchery helps you learn all that so you can take it and apply it and make it your own. It's all about making the magic personal. Cool. And then the last book is Practical Protection Magic, which just came out about, mm, about a month ago. And it's done really well, and that's all on uh, psychic protection and self-defense magic and protection, protection witchery. There's stuff on haunted houses in there. There's stuff to deal with emotional vampires and psychic vampires. Uh, how to deal with hexes and curses, what an uncrossing is, what's the difference between a crossed condition and a hex and a curse, how to figure out if you actually have the next and cursed. Uh, there's warding in there. You name it, it's in there. I think I pretty much covered it all. Um, but, yeah, the reviews have been really good. I've been really happy with uh, the reaction the book has gotten. Mm-hmm. And I think the cutest thing I've heard was people are like, finally! <laughs> I was like, why are we saying finally? Finally! People are being honest. Someone's saying it's real. They're, they're not telling me it's in my imagination. I said, no, yeah. I'm not telling you it's in your imagination. I'm just telling you not to panic. <laughs> I'm saying, okay, if, if this is your problem, yeah. then let's do our homework. Let's figure out what it is. Let's figure out where it's getting in. Let's figure out where it's coming from, and then let's figure out how to stop it in a practical way without a lot of drama. Mm-hmm. I think people forget that are in the pagan community, our middle name is not drama. <laughs> okay? This, this needs to stop. Yeah. Drama is around us all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Some people are naturally dramatic, but to be a witch does not mean you're skulking around being drama-filled 24-7. It yeah. means you go about your life. You follow your path, you live your craft, do the best you can, and you about your business. Yes, you will have drama from time to time, but I'm here to tell you, if you can giggle about it occasionally, instead of flipping your gourd every time something goes wrong, you will do much better in the long run. Mm-hmm. I also find that like, um, it's like swear words. If you rarely yes. use them, rarely... But they're also effective when you do. They are much more effective when you do, to get people's yes. attention. So it's like, you know, if you're not creating any drama at all or trying to get, you know, as least as possible as you can, when you do yeah. want to make a, make a scene and make some drama, people pay attention. Right. So. And some people feed off drama. I think the biggest thing I've run into is people assume that if there's a vampire, they should just build a psychic shield, which actually what that does. The truth is, if you're around a psychic vampire who's someone who would be feeding off your psychic energy your magical, or your magical energy, if you're like, shoot up! If you start channeling your inner commander Riker every time you're around them, <laughs> what you're doing is like chumming the water for sharks. <laughs> All they see is this big whoosh, a flare of energy, and they go, mm, what is that? Because yeah. they sense that flare of energy. And it just makes you more attractive to them because you're panicking and you're creating more drama. But if you stop and you ground and center and you pull your energy in tighter, you become more under control. Mm-hmm. If you're going, a psychic shield will fix my problem. Psychic shields are a good tool. It's one of many. It's not going to fix you every time. Yeah. They're going, I have a psychic shield. See how tall my psychic shield is? No one can get me. Okay, in the old days when they built a castle, did they build their walls really tall and just sit inside and go, okay, we're inside? Hell no. They had arrow slits. They had watchtowers. They had people on guard. They had a moat. Mm-hmm. The walls were just one of their many defenses. 
And the bad thing is most people don't realize if you build your walls really high, your psychic shields really high, you're going to build my arm out on my aura. It's going to be so intense. If you build it really high, you know what happens? You can't see the bad guys because they're coming up over, over the top of the wall, and by then it's too late. Or under the it. The shield is not going to solve all of your problems. It's a good tool. It's one of many tools, but it is not the only tool in the box because everybody has different abilities. Everybody has different psychic talents, and sometimes shielding doesn't help everybody. So if you're around a situation where you feel like someone's draining you or someone's attacking you and you go, I'm building a shield, I'm building a shield, I'm building a shield, may not work so well for you. So you need to understand, number one, who's causing me the problems, what are they doing exactly, and then what's my most appropriate drama-free way to respond. If someone's always going, oh, my God, there's a vampire, and they're building great big shields, they're getting all upset, um, they're just chumming the water. They're just putting more energy into the room for that vampire to go, Mm, I like this. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I mean, if, just, just take it to its next logical conclusion. But if you pull your energy in and you become more focused and you shut yourself down a little bit and you become aware, you become less attractive mm-hmm. to a vampire or to someone who's pulling on energy because you become in control. Yeah. And if you're in control and you're calmer mm-hmm. and maybe use a little bit of your sense of humor and start to laugh at this a little bit, it breaks the link. And yeah. you become in control, and then you can calmly and without a lot of drama practically deal with the situation. But you have to keep your cool. And the best way to keep your cool is to laugh at somebody. Not, not in a nasty way, but if you can look at somebody and go, and really see them for what they are, and just kind of giggle to yourself a little bit, it really makes it a lot less scary. Yeah. Well, thank you for this interview. This was great. So we'll just say goodbye to our listeners. I hope you all enjoyed our interview and I hope to see you at the Beltane Psychic Fair and we'll just do our de-invocation we thank the great spirit and the two who move as one we thank the three rays of love will and wisdom we thank the god and goddess who work through us and work with us may we recognize your presence in our lives blessed be Merry meet, merry part, and merry meet again. You've been listening to Voices of the Temple. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2010 of the Temple of Witchcraft. For more information, please visit templeofwitchcraft.org.